And then I, I didn't surf for, I would say, probably about eight months because Jim went, was getting increasingly ill and he went on hospice. So I sort of disappeared from, from the water in that sense and turned my attention to caring for him. But I remember the day he died, I went right to the ocean about an hour afterward. And I immersed myself in the water and cried in the water. And I just, I yelled his name in the water. And I just couldn't believe that I was in a world without him. And the ocean sort of became this place for me. It became this space where I really let my grief unfurl. And it held me. Hey friends, Lisa Kiefer here, grief and empathy activist and host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. In case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. It's a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in all of our lives because, well, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet, individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate and that's causing all of us so much harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief, one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're joining me. Today's episode is brought to you by Eternova. If we're lucky, we have unforgettable connections in our lives. Someone who deserves fireworks, a million floating lanterns, and their name written in the stars. When these people leave us physically, we need a positive way to keep them close to us. At Eternova, they've created a way to help you celebrate your remarkable loved one by turning their ashes into a diamond. Visit Eternova.com today to learn more. That's E-T-E-R-N-E-V-A dot com. Oh, and don't forget to check them out on TikTok too. Today's guest, Jamie Morrison, and I dove right into such a rich and beautiful conversation about grief, loss, and the way our bodies hold and can be used to express our grief. Jamie is a former professional dancer and now a professor of theater and movement at California State University, Northridge. She's also a woman who fell in love with surfing later in life, which turned out to be a profoundly important passion that's helped her navigate the waters of deep grief after the death of her husband to a brain tumor. In fact, she's created a Cannes Film award-winning short documentary called Upwell, that is such a beautiful and powerful reminder, really capturing the experience of grief so beautifully through dance and surf and community. Jamie's ability to interweave story and metaphor and movement into today's conversation was such a gift to me. And I know you're gonna feel the same way too by the end of our conversation.
Y'all, I am so thrilled to welcome Jamie Morrison to Grief as a Sneaky Bitch podcast. We've been in conversation for maybe almost a year now or something like that, six months to a year, and just so much richness that you're going to contribute to the show and I'm just excited to welcome you. So welcome. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be here to talk with you. Yeah. So as I said, we connected I don't know, six months to a year ago. And I got to know you a little bit and learn a little bit about your loss, the film you've made, the work that you do. And I knew immediately I wanted to share that with the audience. It resonated so deeply for me. So we'll definitely get into that as the conversation unfolds. But I wanted to invite you to just share a little bit like high overview or, you know, like an overview of who you are, the work that you do, and kind of what's maybe bringing you to the show before we dive into uh, our usual question. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love the show and I love the conversations that you're having. And I love the idea of reimagining grief. It's really what, what drew me to you is the title and how you really are providing this expansive redefinition of what it means to grieve and what it means to mourn. And that's sort of what I've been involved with, with my process. I lost my father when I was a teenager. And that period of grief was very different. It was an immediate loss. And I was a teenager. And losing my husband in my 40s was was a very different process. And how I felt very submerged by it. And it was sort of just it did submerge me. I felt underwater. I felt at a loss. And I was sort of shocked by that, given sort of where I was in my life and what I had overcome previously. And so to be completely sort of disembodied from from myself in that way was quite a shock. And the process of redefining myself, rediscovering myself alone, without him, as an individual, has really been an interesting journey. And turning to creativity and to the expression of grief, which is something I've done my whole life, really. I was just about to say, I mean, just we're going to dive into the shifts and changes that we experience with each grief loss, the, the creative response to loss. I think you touched on even the embodied response to loss and how dissonant that feels, especially because of the work that you do, which is so embodied, you know, as a performer movement. Professor. So I want to dive into all of that because I think there's so much richness for us to learn from that experience that you walked through. The context I was just referring to for those listeners who maybe don't know Jane and your work, you are or have been a movement teacher, a dancer, a professor. And the reason I pulled that out is I think we don't talk enough about the embodied response to loss, the sense of detachment that many of us feel from our embodied selves. So the fact that you brought that up as a particularly unique factor of this grief was interesting to me. Yeah. Oh, yes. I've been a movement professor for over 20 years. I was a former dancer professionally, and I took my first dance class when I was four. And I've worked with some wonderful mentors and choreographers who really have given me an insight into how the act of choreography really is an act of listening to the body and digging sort of internally through memories, through feelings, and through ancestral memories almost to create this movement practice. And so when I experienced the loss of my husband, it it just seemed like such a natural way for me to 
to grieve was going back to some of these physical practices because I did experience it so physically. And there are meditation practices, there are journaling practices, there's talk therapy. And what I really found was that going back to the body, to movement, to expressive movement specifically, and making a space for that really is what helped me the most. So it's been kind of a beautiful thing to bring my passion and my experience professionally into this grief, this grief work. I can, as you know, absolutely relate. So I'm catching myself sort of jumping ahead and I really want to dive deep into the richness of this. And I'm wondering if you can help us shed light on your earliest experience of grief. And now looking back, do you see the ways in which you did or didn't recognize your own embodied response to those losses? How are the adults recognizing or not recognizing that in your life? You know, telling us a little bit about what was that first experience of grief like for you growing up? <laughs> well, because my father commits suicide, it was a sudden very unexpected loss. And I think there was a lot of paralysis in that loss. There was just sort of the sense of being frozen with shock. And so that was a very disembodied feeling. But because I was a dancer and was going to dance class every day and was performing, it sort of forced me to breathe, to connect to the music, to connect to a rhythm outside of my grief. And it was very, I think, ultimately quite therapeutic to have that ritual of movement all the time. And then in college is where I actually choreographed my first dance. And I fell in love with the idea of making movement based on an impulse that I had in my body. And I made a piece that was very much about losing my father and about the grief that I experienced. And I felt like such a natural way for me to express it without words. And it was very much, it was a very intense process. And I think that, that that really set the stage for some of my future work, my future explorations, my future choreography. Now, since you were already a dancer at that time, unlike for some of us who might be recommended when we're grieving, like try journaling, as you said, try talk therapy, try movement. It was sort of a natural impulse. Do you think Looking back, did you recognize at the time that there was therapeutic value? Did your mom or other family members recognize that there was a therapeutic value to kind of moving your body and immersing yourself in that way? Or that just was happened because you were already a dancer? I think that I watched my mother struggle greatly with, with her law, with her grief. And she actually turned to poetry and she started writing poetry and actually wrote really beautiful poems. And I think it must have had an effect on me that in the work, in the act of creating something and reflecting on your experience through an artistic practice, it wasn't verbally ever necessarily that connection wasn't made. But I think looking back now, I can very much see that that movement has in a way saved me though in, during those years. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, all loss is just kind of an affront to our nervous system, to our body, to what we know to be true in the world. But I can imagine that a loss that is death by suicide has its own disembodying impact because it's so unexpected, unexplained often, etc. And so to sort of reconnect with your body in a way. Did you ever resist it or did it ever feel like too intense to sort of be so involved in movement? 
Well, I think that there's another side to that. And, you know, I think there's a certain violence around suicide as well. And the other side to sort of the the image of me in dance class, connecting to the music and dancing in sort of this beautiful, sensual way was dancing my my head off at parties and concerts and going crazy in the mosh pit, you know, <laughs> getting getting really wild physically. And I think it was almost like some nights I would just come home, I would be drenched in sweat. And it was like an exorcism of the grief. And I think that that, you know, there are there are definitely these these two sides to to movement. Doris Humphrey, who's a choreographer from the 1940s, she talked about movement being between the arc, is the arc between two deaths, the arc embodying stasis on one end and chaos on the other. And so seeing movement going back and forth on this continuum between these two ideas, I would say in one sense, I was quite off the charts with the chaos. And, you know, that's where grief pushed me. And then other times it would be more of a balanced expression of of the grief. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to dive deep into the conversation about how you met your husband and what that loss was and the beautiful documentary film that you have made as a result of that. But I wonder just to explore a little bit more deeply when you think about both you and your mom kind of relying on a creative response to loss to process, you know, this particular loss. When you look back, was was there ever verbal discussions about grief and loss, particularly again about the way that he died? And how do you, what do you think you learned about how to process grief back then? I'm still processing that experience. I definitely think at that time when I was, you know, I was 13 and it was in the 80s, it, there was a very different conversation. Right. Cultural or, or non-conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I really was, I did really feel quite alone in it. And I think for for many years I had, and um, there was really no words, no language to discuss Which is it. why I think, you know, I've talked about this before. I've had poets on the show and other folks, and I know you and I've talked about this sort of offline, which is why I think it's quite, I don't know what the word is, not surprising or appropriate that your mom went to poetry, that you went to dance, because those things that are so unexplainable, we really can't get at with direct, straightforward language. So it is metaphor and dance and poetry and other artistic expressions that help us kind of find our way to something that we can try to understand that words just will never be of service, I think. Yeah, I think that there are, there are definitely some traumas that ultimately actually resist language. And I think that that's one of the beautiful things about movement and about poetry, which, which is sort of of the same impulse in a way, that it kind of, it can take up residence in those spaces that, that resist language and can fill them in a different way. Yeah, I love that imagery of kind of taking up residence and filling them. And also, I wonder, even help them move or metabolize or flow in ways that words will never like help us come to some new level of understanding. But movement or poetry can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that in a lot of my work, I use language. I'm in the theater department now. I'm a professor in a theater department, and I've always loved words. And I don't necessarily see them as mutually exclusive. But in the right context, such as poetry or theater or dance or song, 
that language becomes a kind of physical expression because ultimately breath is the initiation of both the vocal and the bodily expression. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So you obviously were a professional dancer and working in dance and theater kind of right up, you know, as you came into the working world. Is that what you were doing when you met your husband? And and how did that come? How did that relationship come to be? I was in grad school at New York University. And when I met Jim, my husband, he he and I were actually next door neighbors in the East Village in New York City. And he was in a coffee shop doing his laundry and waiting As for one his does laundry. In the East Village. Right? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I was having coffee and we started chatting and we discovered that we lived next door to each other. And it became this very New York romance where it was pre-cell phone. Okay. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he left me a note asking me if I wanted to have a catch one one day, like a throwing a baseball around on the street. So I left him a note saying yes, and here's the time and the place. And so we communicated through these notes for the first month or two of our relationship. And I still have them. I was just about to ask you that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and he was a he was an artist. So they were just hand painted. They were so beautiful. And mm-hmm. it was this just beautiful New York romance. And I'll never forget the image. During that time, I was creating a an evening of work for a residency that I was doing in New York with Mabu Minds Theater Company. And in one of the scenes, I needed a bench and I had found a bench at a restaurant. It was outside a restaurant. And so I went and I asked them if I could rent the bench for the performance. So they're like, you can, you can rent it for 50 bucks for the weekend, but you have to get it there and take it back. So, <laughs> so Jim and I went and got it. We brought it down to the subway. <laughs> this bench, the two of us. And then we carried two New Yorkers walking in the subway with a bench, you know, no big deal. We sat on the bench in the car, in the subway car. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So I put him to work immediately. And it was it was really a wonderful um, discovery of each other. I love that. I love that. When we come back, Jamie explores what it was like to walk alongside her husband as his cancer took over his body and how and where she sought refuge, community, and support. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast with my guest, Jamie Morrison. Hey, don't forget, if you want to keep up with the latest on the show, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want some behind the scenes news, the latest on my work with companies, the scoop on the book I'm writing, same name as the show, by the way, and more, just head over to lisakeefoffer.com after today's show. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. And while you're there, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter. Why not so regular? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. Thank you for sharing a little bit of that (laughs) beauty and light and romantic love with Jim. Yeah. 
So obviously you both were young and healthy and expecting kind of a full life together as we all do, but because you're on this show, and I know we share some similarities in that loss, tell us a little bit about Jim's illness and what it was like to sort of be there at the end and how you how you were maybe making meaning or experiencing anticipatory grief or kind of what was that journey like from kind of learning about what was happening to to his passing, yeah. Well, he he was diagnosed in 2009 with a brain tumor, and he was immediately rushed into surgery to try to remove it. And we discovered that, unfortunately, it was inoperable where it was in his brain. And he started then radiation, full brain and spine radiation and chemotherapy. And then he had two years of what they call remission. So he was able to have two really good years after that. And then we discovered that it, the tumor was growing again. And then it, it was another two years then until he passed away. So in, in some sense, we had a lot more time than a lot of people do with brain cancer. But then in another sense, once it came back, it, everything went very quickly. So I think the sense of time, it's, it collapses and expands in ways that you can you can't really conceive of until you're going through it. And to be a dancer, to be someone who 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 dances all the time, who who teaches dance, and that is really my world. I I always found it just unbelievable that I was experiencing my beautiful, able-bodied, athletic husband experience a terrible physical decline. And, and it was very gradual, but he went from walking around to stumbling around to using a cane to using a walker to using a wheelchair and then finally to not being able to leave his bed and and that, and that journey was over the course of how long that was over two and a half years and the the sense of of loss for him to see his abilities decline so greatly and for us you know with our little family we I don't know if I should share this or not, but this is, this is very deeply personal. Um, and we're just going to bear it all. Um, <laughs> That's what this show's about. Right? Exactly, okay. right? We, we were just shocked by his diagnosis. We were absolutely, like his doctor even said, he said, don't worry, it's not a brain tumor because he was having headaches. And yeah. he said, you know, go and get an MRI. Don't worry, it's, it's not a brain tumor. Well, it was. And not only was it, a brain tumor. It was a brain tumor that could cause a seizure immediately. It was so large. Yeah, so big and yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they said, get, get to the hospital and have it, you know, try to have surgery. So on the way to Stanford, which is where he had his surgery, we stopped by the cryobank and <laughs> um, we were planning to have a family. And so we wanted to make sure that we would be able to um, and so it was just, it was just one of those things that was like surreal, so weird. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. On the like, way to- they're like, don't, don't, you know, make sure he doesn't die on the way to the hospital. You know, like that's how know. serious it was. You're like, we're yeah. just going to swing by the cryobank and make yes. a deposit. Exactly. <laughs> so, and we found out on Jim's first day of chemotherapy, we found out we were pregnant. And on the, the day my daughter came home from the hospital, I brought her home with my mother because Jim was finishing his last chemo. 
for the year. So it was complete. It was nine months of chemotherapy, exactly matching my nine months of pregnancy. And we threw up together. Yeah, we. <laughs> yeah, we felt um, tired together. Felt, felt tired yeah. together. Nauseous exactly. together. Yeah. Yes, and and what you know, what a joy then when our daughter was born, and I have pictures of Jim completely you know, emaciated from chemotherapy, he lost all his hair, and it was quite an extreme regimen. But he's holding this this little girl. And I treasure those images. And I know how happy he was to have, you know, have had that have opportunity. That. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something you touched on, I'm curious about. First of all, that story reminds me of like how we can experience such great joy in the same moments we're experiencing deep and profound loss and just how much we ignore that in life or don't really want to address the fact that we are can make meaning of those two or try to grapple with making meaning of those two things, which clearly were happening at the same time. But you also talked about sort of the dichotomy of your able-bodiedness and you sort of using that in the everyday of your life as a professor and a dancer and a, mo- and a movement teacher while his he was recognizing his own sort of deterioration of his own capacity. Is that something you all talked about with each other, that, like making visible the kind of losses that he was experiencing? How do you remember addressing the fact of that? Or did you, you know? It was very hard to address because I think for, for a man who is so used to being a provider and doing things with his own hands. He was a craftsman and an artist himself and a piano player. So as as he lost sort of the ability to hold the paintbrush or play the piano, it was really just tragic. But he had this amazing spirit and no matter how hard things were, he would he would still try to do them. And I remember him wanting to help me do the dishes and he he would he would prop himself up at the at the sink and hold on with one hand and then try to wash them with the other because he wanted to be so helpful um, and he didn't want you know his own illness to sort of get in the way of our family our family life and he was a, such a beautiful man and a beautiful spirit that way yeah he sounds that way and also this gestures that you're talking about is really so profoundly true for so many of us who witness have family members who are having maybe degenerative illnesses or chronic illnesses. I had about a year and a half ago a guest on the show who was a young woman with cancer, a chronic cancer, who did end up passing away. But one of the things she talked about, and I just had her husband on the show, was how important those moments of normalcy were. You know, those moments of just, I want, like, I want to wash the dishes. I want to have the energy. She was a knitter and a crafter. Mm. And she did the same kind of like, she struggled to keep doing the things that, you know, in a world where nothing makes sense anymore, which I can imagine was the world that you were living in, both you and Jim, to kind of seek that normalcy is so intrinsically important for us, right? Oh, it was, it was life-sustaining. Just, just the very act of having dinner together every night and making dinner. It was that we, we needed that more than we needed any kind of a vacation. Right. Those traditions, those kind mm-hmm. of normative experiences. Watching football, having Sunday dinner, the things that we had always done, trying to keep those going as much as we could. And even as they changed, 
you know, even as they evolved, the, the essence of that, of that ritual would still be there. This might be a tangential, but because it's been coming up so much, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. So my husband also, as you know, died of a brain tumor in 2011. And we had the chance to do lots of great things and travel the world. But I think over these last 10 and a half years, the things that I miss are all of those little things. Mm. It's standing in the kitchen. He was a better cook than me. Let's be real. Everybody who knows us knows that. <laughs> and cooking or just the little silly moments of him building Legos with my daughter. It. I mean, we got to do amazing things, you know, scuba dive around the world and do cool things. But I think when we think about the grand gestures, when the memories that we carry forward with people is really about the little, the little moments, the simple moments, the kind of everyday moments. Yeah. Yeah. And because he did so much around the house and he, he made our couch, he made our bookshelves, he made a spice rack, his paintings are all around the house. I feel him so much, even now that he's not here. And those things have been such a comfort to me. And on his gravestone, I have a quote from a poem called The Craftsman. And it it's, he who makes beauty ever lives. And it's like I can see I can see a crack in the table that he that he fixed, or I can see something that he built, and it's a joint in a table that he worked really hard to get perfect. And it's almost like these these immaterial objects sort of take on a life of their own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I can feel his presence in those in those small little gestures. Mm, I love that. I love that. I want to explore a little bit how surfing came into your life and where in the timeline that happened in your relationship with Jim and after Jim's death and how you ended up making what became award-winning documentary short film, right? A can film festival, I might even add. I might even just drop that for you, <laughs> which by the way, I will be dropping a link to this film in the show notes. I must have watched it 10, 15 times over the last six months. I just watched it again today and was moved. But we're going to talk all about surfing and movement and the sort of symbolism of that. But tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about how you went from dance to surf and how you use surfing kind of up and through and after Jim's passing. Well, my father was a surfer. Oh, okay. And I grew up in Santa Barbara and a lot of my friends were surfers. I was always in the dance studio, so I wasn't part of that world until I moved back to California after grad school. And I moved back to Los Angeles, and I ended up taking a women's surf class in, through the city of Santa Monica. And even though I didn't catch a wave the first day, just being in the water with a board, it was absolutely exhausting and exhilarating at the same time. I absolutely loved it. And then once I stuck with it and I actually got to ride a wave, I was completely hooked by the experience of surfing. And I could say, oh, that's why everybody is <laughs> That's why everybody's up at six in the morning you know, waiting out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a person who doesn't necessarily love the idea of being in the ocean with all the critters and the sharks and the seaweed and the cold water. But it was a kind of experience that all of that melted away, all of that fear, all of that sort of apprehension. And once once I experienced what it was like to actually ride a wave or, you know, let the wave take me, it was it was such a profound letting go moment that I 
I, I got hooked immediately and none of that mattered anymore. Yeah. I'm sure we're going to revisit this sort of letting go metaphor as we continue to talk, which was very integral. So you became a surfer. Was that something Jim ever did? He did it with me. Yes. He was not a fan of sand (laughs) being a New Yorker. (laughs) Yeah. No, that you kind of comes part and parcel with the whole surfing thing. So, But he was so, he knew how much it meant to me and he knew what it did for me mentally and physically. And there were many mornings when I would sort of sneak off and he would be with Flora, our daughter, watching cartoons and he would, you know, send me off to go surfing and then I would come back completely refreshed and a new person. Exhilarated. And yeah. yeah, it was it was wonderful. So he was very supportive and he knew what surfing started to mean to me as I became more and more serious about it. And, you know, really, I think I surfed three to four days a week, some weeks. And were you surfing all the way through his illness? And how did that serve you as a coping strategy or a therapy? Or how were you able to keep that up? Well, I was able to do it most of the time. And part of that was through babysitters and through gym. And there was a wonderful community down at the beach that sometimes they would, Jim and I would go down with Flora and some of them would talk with us and some of them would, you know, volunteer to watch my daughter. And it was a really lovely, welcoming community. And then I I didn't surf for, I would say, probably about eight months because Jim went was getting increasingly ill and he went on hospice. So I sort of disappeared from from the water in that sense and turned my attention to caring for him. But I remember the day he died, I went right to the ocean about an hour afterward. And I immersed myself in the water and cried in the water. And I just, I yelled his name in the water. And I just couldn't believe that I was in a world without him. And the ocean sort of became this place for me. It became this space where I really let my grief unfurl. And it held me, the water held me, the surfing community held me. And it became a a safe space and sort of a mirror space to sort of reflect back whatever I was feeling. And there was one particular day that became the kind of seed for the film. And it was about two weeks after Jim had died and I hadn't been out in the water with a surfboard. And I went down and I paddled out and there just happened to be quite a few women in the water that day. And they hadn't seen me in a while, but I think they had known that Jim had died because it was on Facebook. And they just paddled over wordlessly, gave me a hug. And this is out in the water and then paddled away. And then another one came. And it was almost like this procession of, of warmth and grief. And it was in the water on surfboards. And it wasn't like anyone said, I'm sorry for your loss. It, it, again, it was wordless. It was this felt sense. And to me, that, that wordless ritual really became the kernel of the film Upwell about how the practice of surfing and the rhythms of the ocean really became my solace and helped me through. That just gave me the chills just as you were describing them. And y'all, when you see the film, you'll see some of this wordless beauty that you're talking about in the community and allowing the, you know, the water to move you and, and move you through. So I can't wait for you to watch it. But it's a few weeks after his death, you sort of have this beautiful 
grief support experience. You have the seed. You had not been a filmmaker previously, I presume. So how did you sort of go from from that seed to thinking there's a story here that I want to tell and the only way I can tell it is through this film? How did you move through that? Well, it was it was a while actually before I could surf. I, what I was doing is I was paddling out and I was going into the ocean, but I wasn't, I didn't have the the drive to actually go yeah, for a wave. Catch the so, wave. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes, some days I wouldn't even make it out. I would just lay on my board and cry in the sand. The yeah. mornings were really hard. My husband and I used to have a ritual where we would have coffee together after school drop off. And I couldn't come home. I, li- I just couldn't face coming home after I would drop off my daughter and I didn't know where to go. So I would just, the car would just almost automatically End up at the beach. take me to the beach. Yes. So you were doing that kind of every day or every school day, just going straight, dropping her, going to the beach, dropping her, yeah. going to the beach. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I did surf. And I, even when there was no one out and the conditions were terrible, I had to be there because there, I didn't feel there was anywhere else for me to go. And that, you know, sometimes it was great and there were lots of people there. And sometimes it was what's called blown out, which means the wind has made the waves not very good. Sometimes it was huge and I shouldn't have been out there because it was too big for me. But the conditions were ever changing. And that's one of the things about surfing is that it sort of puts you in that mindset of grief, which is some days are really stormy and intense and some days very calm and still. So surfing became this sort of metaphor for what was going on inside me. And that the time of of waiting for the waves, that period of that lull between sets, it reminded me of that time. So it was a huge, a huge lull in my life as well. And so I was not sure what was ahead of me. I knew what was behind me and I was in this sort of trough. And of course, waves have troughs as well, peaks and crests. So I just started to see all of these images and metaphors around me. And I thought, what, what if there was a way for me to take my background in dance and in movement and in theater and to try to create something that would express what I've gone through and what, what I'm finding here. And film really seemed like the best way to do that, partly because I'd never done it. <laughs> and, and partly because the, the way images speak to images in film can really represent the nonverbal, I think, in quite a, quite a profound way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I so appreciate the way you shared with us just this sort of unspoken, but just almost again embodied response that like, I can't go home, home doesn't feel right in this time. And you just sort of allowed your body to go where it needed. You didn't even have an agenda about like, I have to surf the wave or it has to look like this. I just need to go and be. And you found a place that allowed you to let out the mess, I mean, messiness and the, you know, unpredictability of, of moving through your emotions. And yeah, you know, I love water. Um, that's something we share. Someday you're going to teach me to surf, I'm sure, but scuba diving is that place for me. And I think often about the metaphors 
You know, I learned how to do it when I was 12. It was a life lesson I learned when I went through a trauma at 15 and then losing my husband, which is to dive in and breathe deep and buddy breathe when necessary and to ask for that help. That's the motto that I live by. And to just, I think, being in the ocean, whether you're scuba diving or on a surfboard or any of, or as you said, dance, anything that's movement really connects you back to your breath, back to your body. And when the world feels upside down from loss, which is the place you were in after Jim died and you're not making sense of the world, I can imagine being connected to the sort of the, the current of the ocean, the waves, the wind was just a reminder that all I can do is breathe one breath at a time and just kind of ride this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember sitting on my board and looking at the horizon and thinking, if I can see that line of the horizon in the distance, then it exists for me, that there's a future. I can see it. It's there. I'm not there yet, but I know it's out there. And that helped propel me forward every day, just seeing that line. That's so beautiful. When we come back, Jamie shares how she transformed her own personal experience of dance and surf and community as healing into what turned out to be an award-winning short documentary film at Cannes Film Festival. Her exploration of metaphor and movement and the lessons she discovered is truly remarkable. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Jamie Morrison. Y'all, I have to tell you about something that happened remarkable recently. A listener named Barbara reached out to say how much the show is helping her as she's learning to navigate the world without her little brother. She wanted to support the show with a financial contribution in honor of him and as a way to carry his memory forward. Barbara shared that her brother, like Cher or Beyonce, had just one name. He went by Mips. And like those two icons, He left, well, a MIPS-sized mark on the world. Plain and simple, he was a connection catalyst. He had this gift of making everyone in his presence his favorite as they unwrapped the present together. His quick wit and warm smile drew people to him. His empathy, compassion, generosity, and love kept them connected to him. So now all of us have the honor of knowing a little bit about MIPS, and we get to join her in carrying his memory forward together. If you found value in the show and would like to be a GSB podcast supporter too, visit my website today at lisakefauver.com and head to the podcast page. So you could see right away, of course, the metaphors of the ocean, both the metaphors sort of that other people could understand about the way in which grief moves through us and moves us. Plus you had all of this sort of artistic, you know, and theater and dance movement. Tell me a little bit about, you probably had a vision maybe about what Upwell was going to be, but the experience of actually putting it into a form and then seeing it. What surprised you? What did you learn along the way? about your grief, of course, or just even about kind of what transformation or impact it had that maybe surprised you? Well, there's a saying, there's a, the film you write, there's the film you shoot, and then there's the film you edit. And they're all different. Okay, and I really okay. learned that. And you have to sort of open yourself up to that sense of change and possibility. And 
once I realized that, things got a lot easier. <laughs> okay. So the um, film you wrote was what? Then let's take it. Maybe we can use that as a thread to take us through. What was the film you wrote? Well, initially the film was called Undertow. And it was very much rooted in this idea of deep grief, sort of this feeling of being, wanting to create this feeling of being submerged by the water and really not not necessarily knowing how to come up for air or to come up. And in the process of making it, shooting it, writing it, and working with the dancer, Rachel Whiting, and the surfers who are in the film, I came across this term called upwell. And I, I'd never heard that term before. And I, I thought, well, that's really an interesting term. And it's an ocean, oceanic term. And it means both the, the process where new water comes and replenishes old water, and it also refers to an upwelling or a swell of emotion. So it had that sort of double connection. And I thought that that is so beautiful. And through the process of making the film, meeting people, telling them my story, asking them to work on it for, you know, because it was a passion project, people did it for very little money or no money. And through that process, I thought, you know what, I'm going to change the title to Upwell that this is no longer going to be a film about being submerged. It's going to be a film about how we, how we get lifted up and how we lift ourselves up. And the footage actually reflects that. So I begin the film with underwater footage. Then I have footage in the sort of white water in the next scene. And then we keep moving up until the final shots are drone shots so that the gaze of the viewer, the the viewer actually sort of makes this upward arc as well. I love so much the fact that you allowed your own grief journey as it paralleled the making of this movie to actually just unfold something that you might not have seen, which I also think is sort of a metaphor for this journey of grief we're on. Like there are times where we are so submerged or we are so present in our current experience of pain or denial or shock that we can't see something new, but you allowed the film process to kind of help you unfold and to take on a new experience. And there's no, to me as a viewer of the film, as I said, 15-ish times now, the short film, there isn't a, in case you're listening to this and hearing about Upwell being about, you know, upward movement and expression movement, it's not a toxic positivity like, oh, just go get in the water and you're going to, you know, just move your way through the grief. It's It feels very organic there's a movement, there's community. I'd love to hear a little bit about the experience for you, having the surfers out on the water with you, but also maybe their experiences of doing that. So there is this sense that you are alone grieving, but that also you're held by the ocean, you're held by this community of people, which feels very much more reflective of the experience of grief that many of us go through that is typically not you know, usually it's like, hey, it's a film and don't worry and you're sad. And then George Clooney comes and then he is interested in you and then you get married and everything's fine, you know. So tell us a little bit about kind of how you allowed the movie to unfold. But in particular, what was it like working with these dancers and surfers and and sort of being in community with them to help tell this story? So fascinating. It was a wonderful experience. And these women that I asked to be in the film were many of the women who originally had hugged me in the water. So it was wonderful to be able to to make this with them because I think they really they really got it. They understood where it was coming from. 
And they were very generous with their time and sort of with their idea about what what was going to be going on. Because here I was explaining that I was going to teach them choreography to be on a surfboard, by on the their way. surfboard, right? <laughs> so we would have these sort of on land rehearsals. And these are non-dancers, women from all different professions, age groups. Uh, it was a very diverse group of women. And we would sit on a wall together and I would sort of be counting five, six, seven, eight, and we would learn these phrases of movement. And once it was time to actually go out into the water and rehearse it in the water, I found that especially challenging because, of course, these women are surfers first and foremost. And whenever a set would roll through, they'd be like, hold that thought, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) I got to go catch this wave, BRB. And I would lose the whole group. (laughs) I mean, a surfer's got to do what a surfer's got to do, you know? Exactly. Yes. So that was really quite challenging and unexpected. Um, They're not like my students who, you know, are... You know, yeah, you're like five, six, or, seven, yeah. eight. Let's go. Let's yeah. do it, right? So you could tell the the morning of the shoot was very special. I got up very early before the sun rose. I drove down to the parking lot. Everyone was in this sort of celebratory mood. We had had weeks of fog, and this day was gloriously sunny. And everyone was saying, "It's Jim." You know, we feel Jim, and I, it just felt. I felt so loved. I felt so held. Um, And that's really what I wanted to express in this particular scene in the film is the idea of these women coming together to support this this other young woman in grief who was sort of playing me um, in the film. And we paddled out together and we were in our formation and we had this incredible photographer, Sarah Lee, who swam all around us. We had the drone camera shooting us and we ended up using the footage without sound. So you can't hear me screaming five, six, seven, eight <laughs> out in the water. But it was a very celebratory day and it, it, it really felt like a healing ritual for me just to have done that, whether or not it became a film afterward. And so that particular part of it. And then, of course, the other part of the film is... I went on a solo surf trip after Jim died down to Costa Rica. And on the way home from that trip, this amazing young woman surfer, Cassia Madora, was on my flight. And I've admired her surfing for years. And she, to me, is one of the surfers who most closely aligns with dance when she surfs. The way that she uses her body, the way she stands some of the the gestures that she uses in the water. To me, she is a dancer. Just happens to do it on water. On the water, yeah. Yeah. And so I got, got all my bravery and I went up to her and I said, you are such a beautiful surfer. I'm making this film about my husband and my process of grieving and using surfing as a, as a way of moving through my grief. And would you be in the film? Would you let me film you? And she said, yes. And I, it was just synchronicity, just that she was on my flight. And so six months later, I shot her in Malibu surfing. And she, in the film, becomes this sort of vision that, that appears to the woman as, a, as a, a vision of hope and like, come surfing, come catch a wave. And I also 
project the image of Cassia surfing on Rachel's, the dancer's body in part of the film as, as if she's sort of emanating from within her, that she's finding sort of her inner surfer. That's, I think, oh, I don't know. I felt moved into tears in many moments in this beautiful short film, but that is one of them when you're seeing, you can feel that she is, as you said, kind of finding her inner surfer and finding her way, how learning once again, how to ride the waves, so to speak, of life. So that's so beautiful. Is there something that surprised you? I mean, so the film came out, again, just a double brag on your behalf, Cannes Film Festival winner, but when it came out, and the reaction that it has received, have you seen the film in a new light now that other people have seen it? Are people seeing things about it that you didn't quite realize were there? What, what have you learned now that it's out in the world? It's really a gift to be able to, to experience the film through other people who've watched it. And it was a thrill to see it on the big screen. I was, I was privileged enough to have the premiere of the film in Hollywood in 2020, before the pandemic. So, um, and it really, it communicated what I want, which is I wanted the audience to feel like they were in the water. Yeah. Oh, you definitely feel that. And a big part of that, I think, is through the score. And the composer was really wonderful. And I think because it's a wordless film, the, the score needs to almost help tell the story. So I think that 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 is something that people have really responded to is the music in the film and the connection between the images and the music. And a lot of people love the sort of the juxtaposition of different shots. They, a lot of people talk about the end shot when the, the water comes down almost like a veil over the dancer. Yeah, beautiful. And it's amazing what people bring to it. I mean, the, they see hope, they see struggle, they you know, with film, I think you you bring a lot of your own your own ideas and past and and experience emotions and emotions. experiences. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, there's so much I love about the film, but I really did appreciate the fact that you chose not to use words to kind of reconnect where we began today, because sometimes words are just so terribly inadequate, and also words kind of ground things and things that are specific that aren't as universal. Um, So I think I agree that the score helped, but I do also think all of the different points of views and the sort of layering of both images, but also kind of people, like, as you said, the surfer on the surfer actually told a story far more powerful than words could have, which is all the different points of views that other people are seeing you, the griever at, all the different points of view, you, the griever are seeing the world through. And just the layers of yourself that you move through, we're always becoming as human beings, but grief or loss events certainly mark a kind of demarcation moment. And I think your film, even with the layering, the music, and without having words, helps us see the sort of becoming that is happening. And then, of course, the ocean is always in this state of movement and becoming. So, yeah, it's so beautiful. Thank you. That's a beautiful description. Remind me, how old is Flora? She's 11. She's 11. So has she seen the film and what does she think about it? She has definitely seen the film. She she and I actually, when we were putting the finishing touches on the score, she sat on my lap and we recorded the two of us breathing in and breathing out together. And so the last moment in the film is this, this 
this audible exhale. And that's both of us together. (laughs) And I hear it. I don't know if, if you can, if you can hear it, but I definitely hear it when I, no, when I, I heard film. it. I didn't realize that yeah. that was the two of you. Yeah. Okay. Well now I'm going to go watch it for a 16th time <laughs> so that I can hear that part. That's so special. So now it's out, it's out in the world. This is something that you and Flora have shared. How do you think you're, you know, we carry our person, our people with us in our embodied selves, in the way we show up in the world. Everybody does it differently. There's there's no one way to carry someone's memory forward. How are you continuing to carry Jim with you and through you, through in your life with Flora? I'll just say first about the film. I have had a chance to see it now several times in different film festivals. And while it is an amazing feeling and a wonderful feeling to see it finished and completed and on the screen, I have to say that it it brings up a lot of sadness as well. And sometimes I wonder now, should I go and see it or should I not? Because it is so deeply sad. <laughs> it is hopeful, but it's grounded in deep grief. And, and it kind of churns that up in me whenever I see it. And I think that that's something that's, you know, going to happen my whole life is I'm going to have these moments where I feel lighter. I feel like I'm moving forward, but that there's this undertone always of Jim and it can be a grounding force. And that's really what I'm trying to see it as something that grounds me rather than something that brings me down. Right. As versus an anchor or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and just the process, I feel so lucky that we were able to have Flora and to see her growing and taking on some of his personality and his his loves of drawing and art and things like that. It's really a gift to be able to, to see him through her. That's amazing. What a gift. Well, what a gift you gave us. And I, and I do appreciate that you shared and opened up a, of the fact that even the making of this film was hugely important, it sounds like, and is one of the gestures for honoring your own grief, but also kind of honoring Jim and carrying his memory forward. We can have those experiences be a both and. So there can be kind of our hope or catharsis or or healing. It can be resonant of a time or an experience or an embodied feeling of deep pain. And um, that fluidity that we've been sort of talking about is the theme through this whole conversation today. I hope our listeners are getting that permission for themselves that when we find ourselves kind of grounded again, or maybe even feeling anchored or untethered, which is the sort of other experience that we have of grief, that that's okay too. And as your film says, the experience of our grief is kind of moving between those arc you know, between those places. Yeah. So I appreciate you just sort of closing our conversation today to remind us that 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 happens too. And we can have grace and equanimity about it and peace and self-compassion that that movement will happen. Yeah. Yeah. Julian Barnes wrote that grief is vertical and mourning is horizontal. And to me, that image perfectly aligns with the idea of a wave that is both, it's both vertical, but it also moves us forward. It propels us forward. And that, that putting, putting morning in motion is really, is really what Upwell was about. Yeah. Thus your 
your Instagram handle anyways, Morning Surf, right? Jamie, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you for sharing Jim with us, sharing your journey with us, reminding us about the fluidity and the movement and the upwell of the experiences of our grief. And as I said, listeners, I'm going to drop a link to the film in the show notes for today's episode. And um, I know this won't be our last conversation, but thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much, Lisa. Well, my friends, I hope you found this conversation with my guest, Jamie Morrison, as powerful as I did. Her wisdom about how the body holds and moves grief and the way she's helped bring that imagery to light in our conversation today was such a gift to me. And I hope you found it to be a gift to you too. If you're interested in watching her short documentary film, Upwell, don't worry, I got you. I'll drop a link in the show notes for today's episode. Oh, and don't forget, if you love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and write a review. Besides meaning the world to me, it helps ensure this show gets out to the people who might just need it most. I want to thank Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and the team at StudioPod for helping me produce it. And I also want to thank you for listening to today's episode. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>